Hey, everybody. It is Wednesday, December 7th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts and a little bit of fun. Oh, yeah. We got a lot of fun ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Way to change it up. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Uh, Jill, you had a big night out last night. I did have a big night out. I mentioned my childhood friend, Lindsay Craft. She put on the most amazing show. She wrote the whole thing. So super talented. Uh, My husband and I went to the city to see it. But we officially are old. Like we cannot handle a night out. We are so tired because we went and we're like, oh, we're in the city. We may as well go for dinner. So we went for dinner afterward. Didn't get home till almost 11, which is like the equivalent of 4 a.m. when you're in college. And and just we can't handle it. We still have to get up very early with the newborn. And um, we're dragging a little today, Mosh. Not going to lie. Well, it, it is a Wednesday, Jill, but I hope uh, that this podcast helps everyone start their Wednesday right and get through this day. Yes, I'm I'm drinking my coffee, and I promise you I will bring my A-game. And on that note, here are the headlines that we are following. Local news outlets are getting a major assist from Congress, but Facebook says not so fast. Meanwhile, more security concerns about TikTok, including one state that is banning its workers from using it. A criminal conviction for the Trump organization, what it means and doesn't mean for the former president. Harry and Meghan's Netflix docuseries already getting some backlash. But first, the latest results from Georgia. Mosh, what can you tell us? Jill, Democrats are celebrating a huge victory in Georgia. Senator Raphael Warnock defeated Republican challenger Herschel Walker in the runoff election Tuesday. It now ensures that Democrats have an outright majority in the U.S. Senate with 51 seats to Republicans, 49. For the last two years, they have needed Vice President Kamala Harris to break ties with their pseudo 50-50 majority. Uh, They would have had the same thing this go around if the Republicans won in Georgia. But Warnock has taken the seat again, which gives them a little bit more wiggle room in the U.S. Senate. So Warnock, after winning two years ago, uh, filling a previous seat, he now has officially been elected to a full six-year term. It is notable because Georgia was once a very red state, and they now have not one but two Democrats representing them in the U.S. Senate for a full term. Warnock, as part of his campaign here, emphasized his willingness to work across the aisle. He emphasized that he does work with Republicans, that he's one of the most bipartisan Democrats in the U.S. Senate, important to those uh, voters in Georgia. Notably, they're returning Warnock to the Senate, a Democrat. In the same cycle, they returned Republican Governor Kemp back to the governor's mansion for four more years and chose an all-Republican slate of statewide constitutional officers. Warnock is famous for being a senior pastor at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. That's the uh, church in Atlanta where Martin Luther King once preached. A runoff was necessary here because in the November election, neither Warnock nor his competitor, Herschel Walker, the Republican, got 50% of the vote. So they went to this runoff. It's a unique law in Georgia. And so now Warnock has achieved more than 50% of the vote. It's looking like 52-48 right now as of when we tape this late on Tuesday night. Herschel Walker ran a very tight race. Walker is known as a football legend from the University of Georgia, who later played in the NFL back in the 1980s. But he had a lot of personal issues, a number of damaging allegations, including domestic abuse allegations from his ex-wife. He fathered three children out of wedlock, and there were claims that he paid for two former girlfriend's abortions. 
So there were a lot of questions about Walker's character here. He was pushed to be a nominee by former President Trump. Walker is now the latest candidate in the Trump realm, Trump mold, who did not achieve victory this cycle, similar to candidates that Trump was promoting in Arizona, Pennsylvania, remember Dr. Oz, Don Balducci, uh, he was a senatorial candidate in New Hampshire, and Nevada. So Democrats now have 51 seats in the U.S. Senate. What does it all mean? Well, remember, Republicans will be taking control of the U.S. House. So Congress is now divided between Democrats with a real majority in the Senate and Republicans with a House majority. So legislation will be tough for President Biden, but having the more significant majority in the U.S. Senate means he will have an easy time getting across judicial nominees, judges, and he's uh, been passing them, pushing them through at a pretty good rate, treaties, ambassadors and cabinet appointments are all handled by the U.S. Senate. So having a real Democratic majority there will be positive for the White House again there, judges being the most important thing. The other thing this means for Democrats in the Senate, less power for Democrat Joe Manchin. He's the senator from West Virginia, a moderate who often sides with Republicans. What this means is they will not need his vote every single time to get things across. Uh, They will have this extra vote uh, because they won this extra seat in Pennsylvania and now in Georgia. It'll give them a little bit more wiggle room when they're trying to uh, pass through things, judicial appointments, et cetera. And so that's a key thing to remember here. So that's one of the reasons Democrats were pushing for this. It also makes life a little easier for them the next cycle in just two years from now when another third of the Senate is up for re-election. It was looking to be a cycle that was going to be tough for Democrats. So having this extra seat means they have an easier time trying to maintain this majority for yet another cycle. Okay, moving on. Some big changes could be coming if you get your news on social media. So, Mosh, listen up. This story is for you. I'm all ears, Jill. (laughs) Facebook parent Meta is now threatening to remove news from its platform completely. This is a response to a new proposal just passed by Congress called the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. It's meant to help local news outlets, which have been decimated in recent years because social media companies like Facebook and Google get a lion's share of digital advertising dollars. In a nutshell, this bill would enable publishers to negotiate with social media platforms like Facebook and Google over how their content is distributed. And most importantly, it requires Facebook and other platforms to pay publishers for their news. You know, it's interesting, Jill, because depending on how you read these headlines, people had different reactions. They're like, wait, Facebook's taking news off the platform? Yay. (laughs) But this story is much more complex. The bottom line here, Jill, is that big tech companies over the course of the past couple of decades have effectively killed local news' main source of revenue, advertising. Local news, if you, you go back, never quite adapted from the days where classified ads were the major revenue driver. I mean, you can you don't have to be too old to remember the days in the 90s, even the early 2000s, where you looked for used cars or a home or movie theater times uh, back in your newspaper, back in your print paper. Well, though, that was the lion's share of uh, revenues for these newspapers, advertising. As things went digital, Craigslist, et cetera, the internet effectively killed that market for newspapers. They never quite figured out digital subscriptions. And then you get to digital media and Facebook and Google, advertisers thought and found that they were much more strategic to advertise with than local news. Therein lies the death of local news. So many folks are saying, well, so what? You know, it's a free competition. But there are implications here for society. One out of five Americans now, due to the death of local news, no longer gets a local newspaper uh, in their area that covers their area. Uh, We have across the country now what's called news deserts. 
Uh, so entire areas where there's no journalism going on. Uh, freedom of the press, of course, is in the Constitution. And even the founders uh, put it in there because they knew a healthy media is vital to democracy. Local news, remember, holds local companies accountable for polluting, perhaps, uh, you know, holds corrupt mayors and uh, city officials accountable. So there is an important role for local news here. Jill, you worked in local news for a number of years. What was your experience like? How are you uh, looking at the story? I'm a huge, huge believer in local news. Um, and, and mostly it's because without local news, there, like as you said, nobody would be holding politicians accountable. It would be like nobody would be watching what's going on. Even in New York, for example, you have the city stations, as we call them. They basically have to cover New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, Long Island, which of course is part of New York. Jill, that's almost like 12 to 15 million people that they cover. It's huge, Moshe. And local news, you have reporters that have beats that cover specific politicians. They know when something seems off in their community. They have their ear to the ground. They know about issues that, that matter. They might be familiar to an audience that might call in and feel comfortable giving them tips. I mean, that's how some of the most important stories of our day get broken. You know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the AP can only cover so much, particularly with newspapers. Um, as you know, newspapers do set the agenda. I mean, we have both of us have backgrounds in TV, so it's maybe a little painful for us to admit. But the first thing you do when you're at a local TV station or a TV station in general is you read the paper, you know, and that's right. how you figure out what's going on for the day. And that sets the tone and you Oh, what, what's this paper covering? Okay, that'll be our lead for today. So in particular, the, the newspapers getting decimated is it's destroying communities and, and democracy. I mean, and I know that may seem like hyperbole, but it's really not. Look, over 360 newspapers have closed since just before the start of the pandemic. Uh, local media that has survived, in many cases, there have been major cuts. So these are dire times when you look at the state of play right now for, in particular, local news. Uh, this bill, just want to mention, was approved by the Senate Judiciary Committee back in September. It has yet to pass the full chamber and now they're throwing this into the defense bill that we had talked about yesterday when it came to that vaccine mandate debate. Uh, Congress tends to do that. They basically throw a lot of things into an important bill that's likely to pass. Right. So we went on a tangent there about local news, but but we wanted to kind of establish the foundation as to why this is important and why Congress feels the need to get involved here. So you have this act, the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, the JCPA, uh, that has uh, been discussed for a while now on Capitol Hill, and uh, a number of senators see an opportunity here to put this into the defense bill and see an opportunity to help local news, in particular against big tech, uh, or kind of view uh, having big tech help local news by getting this through. And this is an issue not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Uh, a lot of folks are pointing to Australia. They passed a similar law last year that effectively said the same thing. Hey, big tech. Hey, Facebook. Pay up. You guys have taken a lion's share of advertising from these local news outlets. News is important. The Australians recognize that too. And so what happened was this huge fight happened in Australia last year. Australia passed the law and Facebook said, like they're saying here, you know what? We don't need to allow news on our platform. And so they actually temporarily banned in Australia, Australian users on Facebook from viewing, sharing, or interacting with any news content. Eventually, though, Facebook did relent. And incidentally, this week was looking over on Reuters. They ran a story out of Australia that Australia is effectively declaring victory here, that they have found that this law has been successful. 
30 deals have been made between Facebook and media outlets down under. Uh, As for here in the U.S., officially, Facebook's spokesperson, Andy Stone, put out a statement saying, like they initially said in Australia last year, the company will be forced to consider removing all news altogether on Facebook if the law is passed, rather than, quote, submitting to government-mandated negotiations that unfairly disregard any value we provide to news outlets through increased traffic and subscriptions. Essentially, Facebook here saying, actually, we're the ones helping media outlets. Why do we have to pay them? I should add here, Jill, uh, that the JCPA, as it's currently configured by Congress, uh, again, we'd be the second country to do this, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, also considering measures like this. So clearly, Meta is worried about having to pay up around the world. Here in the US, as this bill is currently written, uh, this would benefit all media organizations with less than 1,500 employees. So the New York Times, the Washington Post would not benefit. The goal is to benefit local news organizations. Though it is interesting where the sides are coming down here. So you have a lot of local news groups that are very gung-ho about this. You have Facebook that is very anti this. The ACLU, though, and some other groups are saying they're opposed to this. They recognize there's an issue with local news, but they do not believe that this is the way to help it, that this bill is not written properly. Also on the social media front, uh, some more concerns about TikTok. For one, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan banning the use of certain Chinese and Russian-influenced products, including TikTok, which is owned by the Chinese company ByteDance. In a news release, he says that these entities present an unacceptable level of cybersecurity risk to the state and may be involved in activities like cyber espionage, surveillance of government entities, and inappropriate collection of sensitive personal information. Yeah, this is just the latest state to get involved here. South Dakota, uh, recently, the governor there, Christy Nome, who, by the way, has presidential ambitions, probably factoring into this. She signed an executive order in South Dakota, also banning state employees there from using TikTok on their work phones. This all comes as the Wall Street Journal reports that the deal between the Biden White House and TikTok, which was expected to happen this year, has run into more delays as worries continue to grow over the national security concerns that TikTok provides. Remember, they're owned by the, uh, as you mentioned, the ByteDance company out of China. There are questions as to what the Chinese government, how much access to American data they have. So there's been these ongoing conversations between the Biden White House and TikTok. This goes back to the Trump administration, et cetera. So there's been this review going on internally in the administration about the concerns related to TikTok. Can we strike a deal that would effectively uh, protect American users? How's their data here in America? And also ensure that TikTok does not share information gathered from the algorithm about Americans with the Chinese government. Jill, we talked about this last week uh, when uh, I saw the uh, TikTok CEO speak about this at the uh, DealBook conference. He was confident that a deal would go down soon. Obviously, that was his public-facing image. But, you know, this story is not going away anytime soon. I see it as two issues here. So one is the security issue, which we just discussed. But I also think that the addiction issue is also incredibly important. 60 Minutes did a really good story a couple of weeks ago looking at TikTok and social media platforms in general. With TikTok, though, I learned from this report that there are two different versions of TikTok. There's one for Chinese consumers, and then they have one that is available in the West. So in the version of TikTok in China, if you are under 14 years old, they show you science experiments, museum exhibits, educational videos, and it's also limited to 40 minutes a day. 
anyone who has been on TikTok here in the United States knows that is a far cry from what we get here. Um, One expert that 60 Minutes spoke with said, you know, basically they in China get the spinach version and ship the opium version to the rest of the world. And it has real impacts. They asked kids in China what they want to be when they grow up. They said things like astronauts and scientists. They asked kids in the U.S. and they said influencers, social media influencers. You know, which which society is going to do better in the long run? That is fascinating, Jill. Um, That is a good way to lay it out. I I think just as you did, the the security issue and the addiction issue and the impact. And in listening to the CEO last week, you know, they tried to get at, like, tell us about the magic of the algorithm and why you're shipping this, like, again, this Oreo edition, Oreo and Pringles and, you know, snack edition to the U.S. versus spinach edition in China. And he basically danced around it. So uh, I think we're all facing the consequences of social media writ large on this next generation. I think they're calling them the alpha generation now uh, and and what it'll mean uh, and what needs to be done. I know we have a lot of news to get to, but I want to thank this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. There's a great deal for Mo News listeners that I want to tell you about. The Athletic Greens AG1 all-in-one vitamin is a must as we now try to get through this flu season. Trying to get all your vitamins in, as many of you know, can be tough. Uh, And if you're trying to take them individually, they can be tough to keep track of, can get pricey. You know, I was uh, taking a few for a while, a couple with breakfast, with lunch, with dinner. Uh, And what I have loved since I've gotten started here with Athletic Greens AG1 powder for a couple months now is it's literally just one scoop of the AG1 powder with a glass of water in the morning. The experience is simple, affordable, and I'm feeling an extra boost of energy, uh, especially when I used to lag midday. The AG1 powder contains over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. Uh, It also has pre and probiotics to support your gut health. And here is the best news. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit athleticgreens.com backslash Mo News to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just one month. Again, it's athleticgreens.com backslash Mo News, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal, uh, and it really will help you start to take ownership of your health. Everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Moshe and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They're completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. 
That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 1-5% off your order. Okay, time now for our speed read from CNN. Ukrainian drones attack deep inside Russia. Russia, meanwhile, launched a fresh barrage of missiles toward Ukraine Monday after accusing Kyiv of striking military airfields deep inside of its territory. Dozens of missiles were launched by Russian forces towards Ukraine Monday, cutting off water and electricity supplies in some areas. It appeared to be a response to Ukrainian drone strikes deep inside of Russia. For the second straight day, they are now striking farther into Russia than they have in this entire nine-month war. The back-to-back drone strikes over two days, widely seen as another sign of Ukraine's willingness to bring that war closer to Moscow. Yeah, this is tricky. Uh, And there's a number of Western diplomats that don't feel great about this, Jill. You know, Ukraine's going on offense here. The war has largely been fought in its territory, a defensive battle to try to uh, protect its country, try to ensure that uh, Russia doesn't take all of Ukraine. Uh, Russia currently occupies about 10% of the country right now after occupying as much as 15%. They're fighting back. At the same time, though, Ukraine sees an opportunity here to uh, do a number of things inside of Russia. They want to alert the Russians, the Russian citizens, that this war is still going on, and it's not going as well as officials tell them locally in Russia. They also want to show the Russian military that they do have that ability to strike deep inside Russia. It really alters the geography of the war. It shows holes in Moscow's air defense, and it signals a determination to make Russia pay a heavier price for its nine-month war on Ukraine civilians. Like I mentioned, the West is not very happy about this because this could make things worse. Many of Ukraine's allies, including here in the U.S., we've sought to avoid escalating the conflict. In fact, the U.S. and others have not been specifically selling weapons to the Ukrainians that could hit targets inside Russia. They've been trying to sell them short-range weapons. That said, it appears the Ukrainians are developing their own arsenal here. In fact, the uh, strikes the past couple days included some Soviet-era jet drones that they had developed. The State Department was very careful on Tuesday, Jill. Uh, They were asked about this. What do you think of Ukraine striking beyond its borders? And the State Department simply said they didn't condemn it. They just said, we're not encouraging Ukraine to go that far. I thought it was interesting what you said in in terms of striking inside of Russia as a way to almost remind Russians that this war is going on and that it's not going quite as well as Putin had hoped and that they might be seeing on state media. Um, You know, it's quite different to support a war that's hundreds of miles away. But when all of a sudden there's some missiles potentially landing a lot closer to your backyard, uh, you might not be so supportive of it. Close to your backyard or in your backyard? Literally, Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so far, the Ukrainians have made a point, unlike the Russians, the Russians are hitting civilian targets in Ukraine. Ukraine is aiming right now at military targets inside Russia. But again, to your point, Jill, like you hear explosions in your backyard and uh, Putin's like the special... You know, they won't call it a war in Russia. It's a special mission, a special operation. The special operation is going great. Well, could it be going great if I'm hearing explosions (laughs) uh, like nearby? And this is just a few miles away from Moscow now. So the Ukrainians here uh, playing with fire literally because, again, Putin doesn't tend to do well with these types of provocations. Remember when they blew up the bridge uh, last month in, in Crimea? So the question is, is how does Putin escalate things? And this is the big concern. Incidentally, uh, the thing you mentioned at the top, Jill, that the Russians, the Russian counterstrike, one of their missiles landed in neighboring Moldova. This is always the concern is that the war, the longer it continues, could drag more countries in. 
the law of unintended consequences, right? Ukraine fights back, goes on the offense, strikes inside of Russia, sending a message. But, you know, do we want to know what Putin's going to do in response? Okay, moving on from the Washington Post, the law enforcement officers who protected lawmakers while defending the U.S. Capitol during the January 6th attack were awarded congressional gold medals. That's the highest honor from Congress nearly two years after the insurrection. The ceremony took place Tuesday at the Capitol Rotunda, a site many supporters of Donald Trump entered illegally with the hopes of stopping Congress from counting the electoral votes for Joe Biden and overturning the 2020 presidential election. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said, quote, January 6th was a day of horror and heartbreak Yet it is also a moment of extraordinary heroism. The awards recognized the U.S. Capitol Police and the D.C. Metropolitan Police and were given to several law enforcement members and surviving family members. Yeah, there's a lot of symbolism there in holding it in the rotunda where those uh, images, those images we saw less than two years ago, uh, took place on January 6th. The big thing, Jill, many people were talking about was how family members of one of the fallen Capitol Police officers, Brian Sicknick, refused to shake hands with Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. So it was Democratic leadership, Republican leadership at the Capitol handing out these awards on Tuesday. And as family members, uh, surviving family members went up to shake hands, they shake hands with Pelosi, shake hands with Schumer. And then literally uh, Mitch McConnell, I, I posted this video on Instagram, is holding out his hand and the family members are just passing by Mitch without acknowledging him effectively. The video that's getting the most attention is the family of Brian Sicknick, the Capitol Police officer uh, who died the next day, uh, basically ignoring uh, McConnell and McCarthy. He was one of 140 officers that were injured protecting the Capitol. Uh, The brother of Brian Sicknick, Ken Sicknick, was one of the people who were there. He uh, told CBS News in an interview afterwards that one of the reasons you know his family decided not to shake hands there is that he believes Republican leaders have no idea what integrity is was his quote. He was joined by his mother and his father who uh, passed by. I have more from Ken here. Uh, He was talking about Representative Louis Gohmert, he's a Republican from Texas, uh, presenting his family with an American flag that was flown over the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, He said that the congressman told him that their brother was a patriot. Uh, Ken says about that, quote, it's disgusting. Take away everything my brother's done. It takes away the heroism my brother showed. So clearly very, very raw emotions here. And we should note Uh, Jill, that you had Brian Sicknick, who uh, died a day after January 6th, after confronting uh, the rioters. Four other officers committed suicide in the weeks following the attacks. And so what they did yesterday was try to honor those uh, who lost their lives, as well as the hundreds of officers who uh, put their lives on the line to protect the Capitol that day. From the AP, Trump organization found guilty in tax fraud scheme. The Trump family real estate business was convicted Tuesday on more than a dozen counts of tax fraud and other financial crimes in what prosecutors described as its culture of fraud and deception. The conviction on all 17 counts came after more than a day of jury deliberations in state Supreme Court in Manhattan. It was a long-running scheme in which the Trump real estate organization had doled out off-the-books luxury perks to some executives that included fancy apartments, leased luxury cars, and even private school tuition for relatives, none of which they paid taxes on. The Manhattan DA's office had previously extracted a guilty plea from the architect of the scheme, Alan Weisselberg, the company's long-serving chief financial officer. He is one of the former president's most loyal lieutenants going back decades and testified as the prosecution's star witness but never implicated Trump himself. 
All right, Jill. So this case really came down to Weisselberg. Uh, he took a plea earlier this year. It was a big deal. He is a longtime Trump ally, including working for Trump's father, uh, Fred. So he's been with the organization for a very long time. And he took a plea, which will effectively mean that he has about five months in prison instead of uh, a decade or more to effectively turn on the Trump organization to a certain point. So the prosecutors made sure that Weisselberg testified here, and then he's going to receive his final sentencing. Uh, the prosecutors, we should note, stopped short of indicting former President Trump, though they did invoke his name throughout this trial, telling jurors that he personally paid for some of these perks and even approved a crucial aspect of the scheme. Trump, uh, by the way, saying in the past day he had nothing to do with this, everything uh, is corrupt. This conviction is nonsense. And this was Weisselberg totally working on his own. But what does this mean, ultimately? Because this is a pretty significant headline, right? A jury found the organization guilty on 17 counts. But we should note, despite it all, the conviction on charges of tax fraud, a scheme to defraud, conspiracy, falsifying business records, is hardly a death sentence for the Trump organization. The maximum penalty for all those crimes is about $1.6 million dollars which is effectively a rounding error for an organization that notches hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue a year. But the verdict is a public reckoning of sorts for the organization. It does mean that forever the Trump organization has committed felonies. What it means for politics, unclear here. Uh, that's anyone's guess. But it is interesting because the Trump organization, effectively going back to Trump's time in the White House, has had to shelve a number of its plans for new hotel brands, signature hotels, uh, the Trump name has been removed from hotels in Panama, Toronto, lower Manhattan. And so effectively, for the past few years now, even preceding this uh, conviction, it's effectively just managing its existing properties, uh, its office and apartment buildings in New York, a handful of hotels and golf courses uh, around the world. They did have a one-off deal earlier this year in Oman uh, with a Saudi enterprise, but they've had, uh, it, they've had some difficulty expanding the Trump brand for a few years now. From CNBC, Apple CEO Tim Cook confirming that the company will be buying U.S.-made microchips at an event in Arizona Tuesday where President Biden also spoke. Cook said Apple would buy the processors made in a new Arizona factory. Uh, he said, quote, and now, thanks to the hard work of so many people, these chips can be proudly stamped, made in America. An incredibly significant moment. There is a but, Mosh. There is a but. Officially, Jill, the chip factories will be owned and operated by Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Uh, they actually control a significant share of the global market share for chips. In fact, if you're listening to us on a, a Mac computer, an iPhone, or an iPad right now, uh, you're probably using one of those chips. The good news is, Jill, that uh, these factories will be employing Americans. And this is a product, one of the reasons Biden was there is this is a product of the CHIPS Act which was passed recently, it's really trying to incentivize companies to be producing more chips here in America. We view it as a national security issue, as computers are so important. Intel, which is an American chip company, uh, is looking to compete and is building chip factories in Arizona and Ohio. But there are huge national security and business concerns here. Uh, I was talking on Instagram a couple of days ago, Jill, about Apple trying to diversify here. And, and this is in regards to their iPhone production but trying to move its iPhone production away from China to places like India and Vietnam. So there's a general feel of queasiness uh, around uh, Asia right now, around East Asia in particular, around China, given concerns about a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan at some point. So there's a number of factors here in play, and Apple in general is looking to uh, lessen the impact 
of anything that could go down there in China, especially post-COVID, post-shutdowns, potentially with Taiwan, uh, and really try to ensure they can keep its business going and growing outside of China. Okay, from the BBC, Harry and Meghan's Netflix trailers criticized over misleading clips. Two trailers for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's new docuseries have been criticized for allegedly using footage and photos in misleading ways. The trailers show archive clips and pictures as Prince Harry and Meghan talk about being sidelined by the royal family and hounded by the media. However, it is thought that at least three of those images were taken from events that had nothing to do with the couple. Netflix and the Sussexes production company, Archuel, have not commented. So, Jill, you mentioned the trailer. It's, it's been controversial. There's two volumes ca- coming at us on Netflix. The first part will come out tomorrow, Thursday, December 8th. The next part on December 15th, uh, for the, all of those interested. There are a number of allegations you know, in regards to the uh, trailer right now, because that's all we really have to scrutinize, that an image was cropped to suggest the couple were left out on the edge of a royal event when, in fact, they were front and center. There's also a suggestion that another photo, which was used to illustrate press intrusion uh, was actually taken by a number of official photographers whose attendance was controlled and agreed upon in advance. One veteran royal correspondent, Jenny Bond, and, and obviously a lot of the royal reporters have been very critical of Harry and Meghan for sort of zigging where the rest of the family zags and being openly critical. Uh, that correspondent uh, criticized the trailer for what they called extremely sloppy production values. Uh, some images and footage is bizarre. So clearly the uh, palace revving up here to take aim at uh, this Netflix documentary. And, you know, one of the criticisms they've had of Harry and Meghan is they're trying to basically get rich off of the backs of the royal family. Obviously, Harry and Meghan have another case to be made that they feel completely mistreated by the royal family. Uh, Either way, one thing worth mentioning, and that caught notice, Jill, we were talking about it, is that Harry and Meghan started to put out a lot of the stuff just as his brother William and uh, wife Kate, Princess of Wales, happened to be on their first visit in the U.S. in a few years. Yeah, most some of the criticism that they're getting is just, you know, they say that they want privacy, but here they're kind of putting it all out there. Um, the Babylon Bee, which is kind of like the onion, but conservative uh, onion, had a headline, Harry and Meghan announced Netflix special about how much they want privacy. Um, and in the bottom, it says, most people, the rustic farmhands and lowly milkmaids of America, haven't a clue how difficult it is to be as wealthy, famous, and oppressed as we are. Yeah, I, I guess that is kind of, you You hear that argument from a number of people, right? Especially the people who are particularly critical of Harry and Meghan being like, oh, it, it must be so tough to be you two. That said, you and I don't know what it's like to be in the limelight. I mean, this has been the ongoing criticism, especially going back to like Meghan's initial dating of Harry, et cetera, when she was saying like, I didn't know who he was, really. I didn't know what it was like to be a royal when I met him. And then, it, you know, life is so hard. And I can imagine the scrutiny and the people turning on you is tough. But I guess it's very hard for a lot of people to sympathize when you're literally living, you be, literally become a princess, right? Either way, Moshe, are you going to watch the docuseries? I think I will. I think it's on my list, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think they got me. It's so funny. We do this whole thing. Well, you know, this is misleading and this is misleading. Are you going to watch? Yes, I'm going to watch it. A hundred percent. Yes. hundred <laughs> um, percent. And, you know, this is a thing now, Jill, like putting out a documentary, which is kind of cultivated by one side or another, right? Like Taylor Swift did this a couple of years ago, right? Where she put out a documentary that she effectively oversaw. Um, and so people tend to do this. 
you take it with a grain of salt. You understand that people have an agenda, but uh, I'm fascinating. I'm fat. I, I know some people like could not care less. And I hear from you people were like, why do you keep covering the Royals? But I'm like, I, I just think it's, this drama is so interesting to me. I'm with you. I, you know, the crown is what got me really ironically also on Netflix, but the crown is what initially sparked my interest in the Royals. And also, by the way, criticized by the royal family being like, well, that didn't happen and that didn't happen and that's misleading. And you're like, okay, fine. Like, I understand that like no producer was present with the Queen of England for the past 70 years. So I will take dialogue with a grain of salt. But like, it's sort of like, okay, well, that could happen. That's interesting. And Mosh, continuing with our new segment on this day, I think I have an idea of what you're going to talk about today on December 7th. Right. This is this is one of those dates that became synonymous with a historical event, especially for uh, certain generations. Uh, December 7th until 9-11 was probably the most uh, traumatic date in American history is the day of Pearl Harbor. Uh, on this day, 1941, Japanese jets attacked Pearl Harbor, killing more than 2,400 Americans. Deadliest uh, day, deadliest attack on America until 9-11. Uh, the U.S. then would subsequently declare war on Japan. FDR gives his famous speech before Congress. Incidentally, what's interesting to note here, Jill, we declare war on Japan, but we don't declare war on Nazi Germany and Italy. They actually declare war on us. So Japan attacks the U.S., we declare war on Japan. Uh, Because they're in the Axis alliance, Germany and Italy then declare war on us. There's a scenario, Jill, where we might have only fought a war in the Pacific for a while, but the Nazis declare war on us after we declare war on Japan, leading us to then start our two-front war uh, in World War II uh, that will then take us nearly four years uh, to win, both in Europe and uh, Asia. Moshe, it is crazy when you think about all of these major historical events. One different decision or how different things could have been, you know, had had one or two things not happened. Oh, it's incredible. The power of individuals in history and World War II is a, is a, a case, uh, is a central example of that. The Churchills, the Hitlers, the FDRs, individual decisions really impacting things, you know, 80 years later. Okay, and on that note, we got to go. We do want to thank you, though, for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Please follow us and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. And also a reminder to review us in the App Store. We appreciate all your incredible five-star reviews of this podcast. So take a moment. It actually helps us grow uh, and helps us in the ranking. So if you could take a moment, if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review uh, on whatever app you're listening to us on. Uh, Don't forget to also uh, follow our coverage over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. Otherwise, we'll see everyone back here tomorrow. Bye, everyone.